You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you, and I'm joined on the line by Margaret Hickey, author of the newly released Stone Town and the newly Ned Kelly Award nominated Cutter's End. Marg, it's so good to finally have you on the show. Welcome to Death of the Reader. Oh, thank you, Flex. I'm so excited to be on your podcast because I'm such a fan. Thanks for having me. It was pretty fortuitous for you having Cutter's End receive that nomination within a week of the release of its sequel, Stone Town. Has that sunk all the way in yet? I couldn't believe it. So I was at the airport. At my, I'm from a small country town in Victoria, and I was at Albury Airport waiting for my plane, and I was scrolling through Twitter, and someone wrote to me, um, congratulations on the nomination, and I just put question mark, question mark, and then I looked up on Twitter, on Instagram or something, and I saw best um, debut crime novel, and, you know, it had Brian Brown, Sweet Jimmy, it had, you know, it had the others. And then Carter said, I, I nearly died. I shouted and I shouted out in line at the airport, oh, my God. <laughs> and, um, and then I had to contain myself um, for the duration of the flight. Yes, and didn't want airport security getting a little too concerned. Exactly. Then I had to contain myself and then, oh, look, it was just, it's such an honour and I, I'm, I'm so pleased. And, and to be alongside the other shortlist, you know, I feel really privileged. So I'm uh, it, it, uh, nothing like this has ever happened to me. So two things in once, the release of Stonetown and this nomination, it's just been wonderful. Yeah. I suppose one thing that was really fascinating to me getting into Stonetown, like back to back with Cutter's End, was how little uh, Stonetown felt like a sequel. It's so beautifully self-contained the first mention of cutter's end is like 10 chapters into the book or something was there something important to you about making mark's journey uh through these novels distinct even though there is such noticeable growth for him in between those two books yeah i'm so glad you picked up on that flex um i i was really conscious of the fact that i wanted stonetown to be a standalone novel as well so one that you didn't necessarily have to read cutter's end to follow However, um, I wanted there to be this slow progression for people who do read the Margarita novels, and I'm writing the third one at the moment, to see this progression through. So that's kind of like a treat for the readers who have read the first one. I know that's how I feel when I read novels where there's these links between them. So, yes, it was a conscious decision to make, um, to, to continue Mark's journey and his progression as a man, as a man getting older, a man coming to terms with some grief in his in his family life, um, but certainly that the books would be standalone, but all three of them will be, yes. Yeah, I guess one thing about Mark kind of coming into his own and growing as a character is that a strong thread between both of the novels is the fear that women, and particularly young women, face. And Mark is really interesting to me as a catalyst for that because he's both been present for so much fear in his whole life but at the same time is only really kind of starting to grapple with it in this part of his career that we're seeing now. Why do you think unspoken fear is such a powerful divide between even friends? Well, I, I don't know so much about friends, but I, I think between um, men and women and also between generations. So I'm not so sure about the friends bit, but I have thought about the generations and that male and females, and sometimes, and Flex, you're younger than me, I'm 50, and men of my my friends, my very good friends who are male, my husbands, my brothers, and that sort of thing, they are only just beginning to realise or don't realise how frightened women can be um, 
in so many different circumstances. And that and when you do explain it to them, they're kind of shocked. They're kind of like, I would never have, I would never have to worry about that walking home, or I would never consider doing that walking home. You know, they it's a surprise to them for men of who in my age group. And um, so certainly I think that there's that male-female divide with uh, sorry, there's the generational thing. Yeah, so I, I just think that it's perhaps something that we haven't spoken about much. I think the younger generations are much better at it. But that 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 fear, and certainly with the whole me too, and, and now it's much better. But for the men of my generation, when I was young in, you know, 1989 and the early 90s, we didn't talk about those sorts of things. So now that those men of that age are getting older, like me, are in their early 50s, it's come as a slow surprise to them. Which is which is odd, but uh, I really do think it has. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting. You know, you mentioned the Me Too movement in there, and one of the moments that you did bring up the movement was Mark and Rachel ha- ask a young girl what the slogan printed on the back of her T-shirt was, and then end up oh, yeah. end up you know googling what it was and finding out that it was a, a term adapted from a YA novel. I won't go into a heap of detail there, but the thing that kind of stuck out to me was that for yourself as a writer who I know is a really big advocate of reading both for writers and readers, that was the closest we got in the Stone Town to reading a book. So many present pop culture kind of fiction references with films and TV, but books kind of are left to these important plot moments, but very quietly in the background. How interesting. Do you know what? I'm going to be totally honest with you. I've never actually considered that. I've, I've only realized that now. I guess for my main character, Mark, I didn't imagine him as a big reader or as, or so I think he's someone who has loved reading but has never really thought consciously about his own reading. Um, uh, but we find that he does read a bit more as, as the books go on. But certainly pop culture is everywhere with music and film and, um, and those sort of subculture movements like the goths, that sort of stuff. So all of that's really visible they're, they're quite visible and, you know, audible, those things in pop culture. But the reading is um, a more private thing, I think. So that, that the, the, books, the book stuff is interesting. And, gosh, that's funny that you pick that up, Flex, because even now I'm writing for the third one, I'm writing about Mark reading. So, yes, maybe that's coming more into the fore as he gets older. It was interesting to me because just last week on the show we were having a discussion with uh, Moira Redman from Clothes and Books about how Agatha Christie is kind of the same with the way that she writes fashion. Yes. Where Agatha Christie rarely ever writes anything about people's clothes but the few instances she does it's like the most important thing in the book and I thought that was such a fascinating like having just had that discussion the following day reading that passage in Stonetown I was like oh my goodness (laughs) you're doing the same thing you know what Flex you're so right and even now as you're saying this I'm thinking about the times that I have explicitly put books in and book titles in and of course those book titles even if they're sort of mentioned randomly are incredibly important to what's happening at the moment or what's about to happen. So, yes, thank you for that. You've, uh, You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. You've made me realise that. Well, I suppose the other thing with, uh, with like, reading and books in your stories is that your background comes from having a PhD in creative writing, which was studying landscapes in Australian literature. And unsurprisingly, you do a wonderful job of painting an image of this post-gold rush town where, as the press line describes it, land is the new gold. What is it about the way that the value of rural areas have changed that make it so ripe for putting these power struggles in those towns? Oh, I mean, they're just 
it's a gift. It's a joy to be able to write about landscapes as an Australian author. And I'm really fortunate because I have lived in small rural towns almost all of my life. Uh, going overseas and at university, I've always lived in small towns. I live in one now. And landscape is incredibly important to me and has always been very interesting to me. So there's a few things. I mean, there's the really obvious things for a writer about what a rural landscape does. You can hide a body really easily in, in the country. You can hide, there's numerous places to hide a body. You can, and, and you can put people in really extreme situations like droughts or floods, and that will be more apparent in, in a country than in a city where they're often protect, often not always protected from those things like bushfires. Um, and thirdly, you know, you can put body, you can put people in places where literally no one can hear them scream. So, so there's there's really practical components, and then there's the other components which are really important to me, and which is was been my research throughout my PhD and most of when I was writing in academia stuff as well, is that landscape for white Australians is so interesting because although for someone like uh, me and uh, although I'm a bit, we're a bit different, I suppose, that, that we love the landscape and we, we love being in rural areas so much. There's this, there's this notion of um, do we belong here? Uh, it's this whole white belonging thing, this unease that sits as white people and white writers in, um, in land that has, been, um, has never been ceded. So it's, there's this really interesting psychological stuff as well um, as well as the practical. And, and for me, and then there's also the emotional stuff for me, you know, having grown up in these towns and living in them, I, I see these characters and these people and these places every day. I'm kind of living a lot of these, these things that I talk about in the book. So it's, it, it's really terrific for me. I, I feel very fortunate. Yeah. One thing that you mentioned in there that I thought was really interesting is that the idea of regional towns and the way that you can hide something or uh, particularly you said you can't hear people scream the this idea mm. of like deep space and the mm. almost the, the the horror element of it and one thing that was really interesting to me right from the very beginning of stone town is the motif you have of the barking owl mm. and the kind of the old school country tale that barking owls have this sound like a woman screaming blood curdling in the night have you ever heard it flex i looked it up while i was reading through this book because i was like there's no way that's true and then oh my god <laughs> you get you get to these recordings and you're like okay so is this the real one or did someone just put a woman screaming in this youtube video when i was when i'd first moved from one country town to another and i'd moved to the warby ranges um so this is like 2017 is this is northeast victoria and I'm still in northeast Victoria, but in a different country area. Um, and we were living in the bush, and uh, we I had a small child, and we woke up, and there was it was about June or July, and there was this most horrific scream. And my husband and I both woke up, this sort of sobbing, wailing scream, and it was it, it is the most terrifying thing I've ever heard of. And my husband and I both got up. My husband, we turned on all the lights. My husband went outside. He was calling out, worried about, you know, that there was a woman there being attacked. And we really, like, we didn't know whether to call the police or I think we went to call the police and then we said, no, we, this can't be right. Like, <laughs> we're in the middle of nowhere. This, this can't be right. And then um, it sort of stopped and we said it must be a bird or an owl or something. And then it started up again. And then we said, this is, 
you know, this this is a bird. And we looked it up and it was, but we didn't sleep the rest of the night. And, you know, I, I understandable. Had, <laughs> and then we would hear it. So we heard it periodically, not very often because they're endangered, but we heard them. They're still they're still in the northeast and um, it, it never got any easier. We knew it wasn't a woman being attacked. We didn't go out searching, but we we knew that it was a bird, but they are terrifying birds. But, you know, I've been walking in the bush near my house and I've looked around and there's a man with binoculars looking and it, it, my first instance is um, he's spying on me or he's going to murder me and then, He's looking for the for birds, you know, Ninox conovens, maybe the barking out. That was that was one thing that I thought was so fascinating about this motif through the stories because you bring in the bird watching club, which obviously harkens yeah. back to that particular moment you're talking of there. And I loved it in relation to that kind of deep space no one can hear you scream metaphor, where these bird watchers are out there at least in relation to the crime, hunting for something that might not even exist. Like it may not have been a barking owl that screamed in the crime. Yes. And it's such like a horror novel thing to do, this group of people oh. there looking for the the non-existent. You're so right. And that's and you're saying that is everything that I hope people would think too, because I think that too, because I think that, because I've had that experience of hearing it and I've seen that, you know, I've, and there's this whole idea of surveillance, you know, who's watching who, what are they watching for, what are they listening, what are they actually watching for? And I've come across, you know, I'm starting, I, I would say that I'm a very beginning bird watcher myself now that I've lived in these areas and, and so now I've gotten to know them more. But um, it is disconcerting to see someone standing sto- so still in the middle of the bush, you know, in Chilton National Park where no one ever is. And this this feeling of who's watching who and what are you actually doing here? But of course they're looking for birds. Um, yeah, so it's it was a good it was a good thing to put in the book. Yes. Yeah. Now coming back to that idea of the rural noir, the small town thing. One thing that you see so many authors do is that they make a small town feel like it is completely separated from the outside world. It's a different <laughs> world altogether in there. But you kind of upended that with not only Mark coming into the town and being familiar with it because of past experiences, but also in the way that Sergeant Natalie Whitsaid's story like envelops this tiny town and becomes almost inseparable from big city crime. Why did you feel the need to upend that? It's not as though I felt the need for it. It's because it's true. You know, I'm I'm from rural Australia, you know, and I small towns are not this, we're not, you know, we don't have hay sticking out the corner of our mouths and we don't, we, it's not like a separate, well, we're invariably connected to the city and small towns are microcosms of big cities, no matter what anyone says, you know. I, I know this, you know, in the streets and, you know, there's there's writers, there's ex-ballerinas, I'm thinking of my town, you know, there's there's farmers, there's doctors, we're microcosms of, of the big city. And I guess it is, it's a really good horror trope to write it as though they're completely separate from everywhere else, but but they're not in reality. And I and I try to write rural towns as authentically as I know them and I hope that comes across. So 
I, I never wanted to make a, a small town seem like that, and I never will, because they're not. <laughs> Though you definitely did still take advantage of the small towns in the mystery sense where information spread so fast that alibis are meaningless. Oh, Love oh, that trope. totally true, though. Like, news spreads like wildfire. Everyone knows each other. You know, if my middle son's caught drinking in the golf course or in the community gardens, <laughs> I get a phone call the next day from someone who's spied him and his friends, you know. Where, oh, this, is a, this is such a particular example. I feel bad almost knocking on your son by putting this in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I don't mind. He needs more of that. Um, but, but, but you know that's um, and I great like I get all that stuff I get the horror stuff but I really try and you know kind of because the people I live next to and the people who I buy my sausages at you know they read my books and I I want them to know that I'm writing it as authentically as I know them to be yeah and and quite frankly Michael Burge is on Twitter too frequently for country towns to ever pretend they're separated from the internet that's so true <laughs> He's terrific, yeah. Now, the one thing I did want to close out on is around the release of Cutter's End, you mentioned how little you knew about police procedure and the journey you went on to learn more about it. With layers of police spread between layers of investigations in Stonetown, how do you think Mark's growth professionally and empathetically reflects your own growth as a writer? Gosh, you ask good questions. (laughs) Well, probably quite similar because Mark is... um, He's really connected to his hometown. He loves Adelaide. He loves the city. He does. He loves it. He harbours no ill. Sometimes he sort of pretends he harbours ill will, but he doesn't really. His sons are there. You know, he loves going to the city. But he has this real connection with his hometown and um, to the river, to the trees, to the birds, to the people there. And in that way, I feel connected to Mark. Um In terms of professional life, I don't think Mark's ever going to be assistant commissioner. I don't think Mark ever wants to be like his friend Angelo, who's rising higher and higher in the ranks. And I think for me, I'm pretty happy with how my writing life's going. I'm pretty happy with where I am and the people that I'm meeting. And so maybe Mark and I are a little bit similar in that way. I don't think I'm ever going to win a Pulitzer Prize (laughs) or a Booker (laughs) by any stretch of means, but um, I'm pretty happy where I am right now. Mm. Well, fantastic, Margaret. It's so good to finally have you on Death of the Reader and I've had such a fun time reading through both Cutters End and Stone Town. I really hope that people enjoy them as much as I have. Thank you, Flex. Your support to new Australian writers and and um, writers who have been around for a long time is really valued. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And thank you for joining us here on the podcast for this special with Margaret Hickey talking about Cutters End and Stone Town. An enormous thank you to Penguin Australia for copies of those books for this review. Get subscribed if you aren't already so you don't miss any other fantastic conversations we get the opportunity to have with wonderful authors. This is Death of the Reader. I'm out of here.